And another thing And another thing And another thing And another thing Welcome to another episode of And Another Thing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tony Clement. Jody Jenkins is off the rails for this particular podcast, but will, of course, return in the near future. Uh, But we want to keep the show going. And so, of course, we want to thank our sponsors, which the top of the list is our presenting sponsor, Municipal Solutions, John Mutton at the gang, uh, with their uh, company that does so much for development services and project management. They are Ontario's leading MZO firm. They do development approvals, permit expediting, planning services with municipalities, engineering services, architectural services, minor variances, land severances. You get the drill. Uh, Go to municipalsolutions.ca and talk to John. He can help you out. Uh, Of course, this program is rebroadcast at Hunters Bay Radio 88.7 FM in Muskoka and also on huntersbayradio.com every Saturday morning at 8.30 a.m. along with another, uh, amongst other podcasts as well. So that's another great way to listen to podcasts is through the programming on terrestrial radio. And uh, finally, last but not the least, Jody would not be happy if I didn't mention we also have a program on looneypolitics.com. You can subscribe and get 50% off by mentioning podcast. And of course, Looney Politics has a lot. It's a news aggregator. It has a lot of original content. So we want to thank our friends at Looney Politics. Today, our special guest is uh, Melody Paradis. She is president of Texture Communications. Uh, She was a director of strategic communications at the office of the leader of the opposition under Aaron O'Toole and was indeed deputy campaign manager for Aaron O'Toole in the last political campaign, general election. Melanie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for for having me. And uh, just a correction, I was uh, the deputy campaign manager on his leadership in 2020. Uh, general election. I was actually on maternity leave. You, that's right. I forgot about that. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, of course, uh, I think you're you're in Jody, Jody's neck of the woods too, aren't you near Belleville? Yeah, I live in Belleville now. That's right. Yeah. We moved, so you- uh, we moved here a few months ago. So you might bump into my co-host, uh, Jody Jenkins, at some point. Because at the grocery store or the butcher, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. Uh, knowing knowing Jody and his hungry family, that he would be at the butcher shop. So that's that's good news. Thanks for correcting me there. Uh, and of course, great having you on the program. Always love the chat. Uh, and you were a keen observer, of course, in this leadership race. Uh, and I'd love to get your a sense of the CPC leadership and uh, the weeks that have followed so far. Any uh, preliminary takeaways from that? Yeah, I love I love watching leadership races. I find I find everything about the campaigns to be fascinating, um, and I love to dissect the data afterwards and see how um, like what kind of an impact different policies may have had or different approaches. I think our our party is ever evolving and the way in which we campaign is ever evolving. And if you aren't paying attention and learning from from campaigns, even if you aren't involved in them, then you're not really going to learn for the next one. So I I was keenly observing this and was very interested in, in some of the strategies that were deployed. I think 
in the past couple of weeks since the leadership was decided, um, we've we've seen this shift. And it for you know folks listening at home, it, it's a massive undertaking to transition from a leadership race into the office of the leader of the opposition. You've got to staff up. Um, you've got to figure out like what roles MPs are going to be in in terms of a, a shadow cabinet, and I think. I understand we're going to see that in a in a few weeks, sometime before Thanksgiving. They're saying um, we'll we'll see a shadow cabinet, and you have to plan to respond really to all of the government legislation that's been that will be tabled in the, this fall. And we've already seen some of that, especially with with the dental piece that they that they've introduced. Right. So it's a huge undertaking, and I think that uh, they've been making some progress so far. Yeah, I mean, you you obviously went through this uh, with Aaron O'Toole, but uh, it's not as if when the leader gets elected, you know, there is some infrastructure in, in place, but it really is a blank slate that the leader has to fill in relatively quickly. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got to hire... Um, a chief of staff got to hire senior advisors, um, and then and then like the worker bees too, all the people who actually do the things, and it's everything from the person who manages your social media feeds to the person who's uh, figuring out what the lineup is for question period, and everything in between. There's there's a lot of moving parts. So you say that you're a, a good student of the data. What what does the data tell you right now? Well. I'm really interested in, in, I haven't actually seen a whole lot of the data since, since the leadership. I'd only really heard anecdotes about it from the different campaign teams during the race. I would love to do a deep dive into it, but you know, we keep these things under like lock and key. We don't just open the data up to anybody. Um, But what's so interesting to me is how the party, now that we've more than doubled in size, it's this massive membership drive during this leadership race. I'm really interested in in polling the new membership and trying to understand. And I think we'll see some of this shake out in in August when we have our next policy convention in in Quebec. Um, where do people fall on the political spectrum? Um, are they perhaps more libertarian leaning? Some of the new members are they you know fiscal hawks? Are they defense hawks? Like what is it that that's motivating them policy wise aside from Obviously, their interest in in supporting Pierre Polyev um, and in voting for him. Are there other things that are motivating them? And what's that going to mean for the future of our party and our policy direction? I'm really interested in in learning more about that. That's an interesting couple of points because, uh, of course, the last uh, policy convention had to uh, had to be undertaken during COVID and. Mm-hmm. It was it was really tough. I, I did participate in some of the the uh, online uh, discussions and so on, but it was tough to sort of get a sense of the room, wasn't it? Totally. I mean, Aaron O'Toole's entire leadership was during COVID. Um, you know, yeah. he didn't he didn't actually meet some of his MPs in person, like some of his members of caucus in person, until after the general election. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy when you when you think back um, over that period of time. Like he started as leader when we didn't have rapid testing, we didn't have vaccines, we had none of that stuff. And it was just a very different moment in, in COVID. It just, it's, it's fascinating to reflect on that. So, uh, yeah, no, so, and so you, you also make a good point about, you know, what is the political culture of these uh, new uh, conservative party members? Uh, and, uh, for people uh, who, uh, 
are not aware, uh, at the annual meetings, uh, you know, that happen actually biannually, I guess, of the party, uh, there are uh, uh, constitution resolutions, there are policy resolutions, uh, you know, structure of the party resolutions, all of these things that can be voted on by, uh, by delegates by sticking up their hand with a card that says yes or no on it. So uh, presumably at uh, this one coming up in Quebec City, which is going to be the next one next year, uh, late summer, uh, there will be resolutions and they may be something entirely different, right? Yeah. And we have, when we're in opposition, the, the grassroots of the party has a lot more power to influence the policy direction um, from, from those conventions than when we're in government. We're in, when we're in government, um, I mean, the government sets the direction, not the membership, right? Um, so it's actually, assuming that there isn't an election between now and then, and I don't think that there will be, um, because the liberals are just doing quite poorly in the polls. I don't know why they would want to go to a general election right now. Right. Um, but assuming that there is no election before we have our policy convention, um, the membership, the new membership will really have an opportunity to make their voice heard. And I think it could be pretty interesting. So let's uh, switch gears because the, the original reason I invited you on was actually to talk about some of your writings about the American political system, what's going on with the midterm elections happening in the United States for Congress and for gubernatorial elections and so on. Uh, maybe I'll, rather than paraphrase, I'll allow you to make a, a couple of your basic points on how you see this, the structure of politics in the United States right now. Well, I think that I th actually it's not entirely dissimilar uh, when <laughs> if we take a step back. So we've got this in, in Canada. We've, we've now just gone through this leadership race and we have doubled the size of our membership in the Conservative Party. So we have hundreds of thousands of people now um, that we could tap to get more involved in in local politics, like in their in their riding associations, to get more involved in in local campaigns to help us win the general election. In the states, they're they're actually able to do a lot more. Some of the positions that we uh, that we have in, in Canada um, on election day, where you know you go and you 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 might volunteer at, at a poll to do a, to be a scrutineer, but in the states. You can actually be appointed to a position where you could end up deciding an election if it's very close or challenging uh, an election. And what Steve Bannon, who's who's long been an advisor of, of Donald Trump, has been up to uh, is recruiting thousands of people to sort of apply for and secure those positions. He, he calls them his War Room posse. He's got this podcast um, called War Room, which is, I think it's the most popular. It's, it's certainly top five, both in Canada and the United States. It's one of the most popular podcasts for politics in the US. So he's got a massive following that he's built up over the course of the last couple of years. I think he started in the beginning of COVID. Um, and he's sort of shifted gears to now focus it on how to activate people at, at a grassroots level. And one of the reasons why I'm so interested in this is like we talk about grassroots politics all the time here in, here in Canada and how to engage our volunteers. And it's just, it's frankly, it's like pulling teeth. It's really hard to get people involved. Right. He's managed to make it really sexy and to make people feel like if I just do this one simple thing, I can have an impact on the future direction of our country. 
And he's really tapping into this desire for change um, among many people in the United States and is giving them a tool, a very simple, a free tool, frankly, to help them understand how to get involved in their democracy. And, and I, I foresee it really structurally changing, not only the GOP, but just politics generally mm. in, in the U.S., uh, could you say, though, that um, the Democrats have been more effective at this over the last few election cycles anyway with their uh, voter registration uh, organization and their uh, get out the vote organization? Is, is this a case of, of Bannon's Republicans or MAGA Republicans, or whatever you want to call them, just catching up a little bit? Or is this something d- d- different? It, it, it's certainly a bit of both. So I think this is these these are all perfectly legal tools at one's disposal in in a democracy that just had gone underutilized for decades in in the U.S. No one was really paying attention to this. No one was, and so many of these positions were vacant. Um, and and Steve Bannon noted that and said, you know what, we we could have had a a different result uh, in the last general election, in the last presidential election, um, had we filled these positions with our own people. So let's make that a priority to to do that this time around. Um, and now, like whether you believe that that would have had an impact on the result or not is a separate subject. Right. But tactically, having people in those roles um, is incredibly useful. So but how do you how do you attract people to do that? Because it seems like a pretty boring job. Well, he's he's gone and made it. Um, really attractive in parts. Some of it's like the words that he's using, um, the titles that they're giving people when they kind of level up within MAGA nation. Like you can become like super MAGA or ultra MAGA. And, um, and, it, and it's motivating people to just to do more, to sign more people up, to get some of their friends, their family members to, to engage as well. Um, and again, whether you like it or not, you you kind of have to respect the hustle, and that's why I've been I've been watching this right. with great interest. So, is this something that is within the GOP organization? He's doing this, or are are these uh, positions that are supposed to be neutral positions within the structure of you know elections in a particular state? So, every as you know, every state is is different. Um, it's not it's not completely the same across the board. They aren't even the same name. Like he, so he calls it, it's the precinct strategy. Um, they have a whole website do- dedicated to explaining it's precinctstrategy.com to explaining how it works and what people need to do. And depending on what state you live in and, and what precinct, um, exactly what the title may be for the role that you're looking for. And they've really adopted, a gone to a great deal of detail to, to help, um, educate people on uh, on how democracy works and how they can get involved in the system but these are america first americans that's what that's what bannon calls them that's what they call they call themselves it's how they sort of identify they're not actually republicans and in fact some of the language both on the precinct strategy website and that bannon has used even when he was uh, addressing cpac uh, a few months ago they they say like we need to bring the America first Americans into the Republican party, like into the GOP to sort of take it over. Um, they're, 
And that's a separate project from whatever Trump decides to do. Is that right? I, I think so. Yes, because ultimately, whether he decides to run or not, this is still a useful army, frankly, of people yeah. um, to have to help you win the next election, regardless of who it is. And but it, I think they're they're very motivated. America First Americans are, are very, they're Trump supporters. They're um, people who, who believe that, that Trump won, actually won the last election like they. I'm not sure how transferable their support would be to mm -hmm. a different candidate if he doesn't choose to run. But um, if he then, if he, if he appoints someone, like if he anoints them rather um, as like his chosen preferred person, perhaps they would then transfer with that support. Right. Right. So I, I get, I would, I would surmise that governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is paying particular atten attention to this too. Totally. And he is in an interesting position because he, it's not like he can actively run against Trump. Like if he wants to run for president, which I think, I think it's clear that he does want to do that. Right. Um, he, he needs conditions to be such that either Trump isn't in the race or if Trump is in the race, he has to run a very clean campaign where he's not seen as a, as as antagonizing Trump supporters because he would want to win some of them over. He would need to. Right. Right. So uh, now taking your analysis of what uh, Steve Bannon is up to, uh, to the immediacy of the midterm elections, uh, how do you, uh, this is not just a long-term play. It's a short-term play. They, they've got to, they want to do well in the midterms. They want to kick Nancy Pelosi out of the speaker's chair. They want to yeah. gain control of the Senate. Uh, they want to win uh, governor's mansions. So is this, is this going to have an impact on all of that as well? Well, I think that's going to be the, the first real test for this is to see like, is this the beginning of, uh, of what will become sort of an effective push towards presidential election or um has this just been a lot of hype and they aren't actually able to to get as organized on the ground as, as they thought they would i think we don't we just don't know yet until we watch this play out so uh okay so put that aside for a second you're you're observing u.s politics so you got some uh, interesting races in pennsylvania and ohio mm -hmm. and uh, wisconsin and uh arizona let's say uh, is there anything that is uh, that you see that is showing a trend? I mean, uh, just to set the table a little bit, uh, Democrats and some political observers are saying the Roe v. Wade decision on abortion rights or lack thereof uh, is motivating the Democratic base. Others are saying that the cost of living and inflation is motivating the Republican base. Uh, what's what's the trend that you see? I mean, I think both of those things are happening at the same time right. and they're on a collision course. Um, and, and again, it's just going to be a question of who's more motivated. And I think that's why we're starting to see, I shouldn't say starting to, because we've been seeing this tone shift for, for a long time in, in American politics. But I think a lot of people were really surprised a few weeks ago to see, um, to see President Biden do that speech where he's like backlit with red. red. <laughs> it was just, 
the red the red speech and using Game of Thrones parlance. Yes, totally. Um, it was quite alarming, and and I really think it was it was a step change. Um, he's taken things to another another level. The rhetoric's gone to another level. Now, I think when you compare Canadian American politics, their rhetoric in the United States has been at another level for a while. Um, and it's but and it's the same, frankly, on on both sides of this. The we're becoming a much more divided people, both in Canada and the United States. Um, the we're becoming much more polarized. Uh, and the language of our politics is really being weaponized. And I think one of the, something that stood out to me this weekend, there was uh, a statement that came across Twitter um, from the Pennsylvania GOP nominee, Doug Mastriano. It had some language in it that immediately caught my attention and had my like alarm bells <laughs> ringing. Uh, the backstory on this is, there's this. There's a man in Pennsylvania who's being investigated for allegedly like sho- a shoving incident of some sort, some harassment that uh, happened outside of an abortion clinic that he was protesting at. Right. I don't. I don't know a lot of details. I don't think the details really matter. All you need to know is there was some sort of incident that may or may not have been criminal, but was under investigation. And so, the uh, apparently um, there was an early morning raid at this man's house by the FBI. And he's a, a constituent, right? This is in Pennsylvania. So Doug Mastriano um, I- issues this statement over the weekend. And the words that he uses, I'll, I'll just quote him directly. Yeah. The continued weaponization of the FBI and persecution by Joe Biden's DOJ against ordinary Americans is an outrage. Then he describes the raid as having traumatized his family, which includes seven children. And, and look, I can imagine that if the FBI raids your house and you've got young kids and their guns are drawn, like that is terrifying, certainly. Yes. Um, and then the statement goes on to say, the show of force carried out by the Biden regime against ordinary Americans is an abuse of power that stands against the fundamental principles on which our country was founded. As governor, I will not allow the police state of Joe Biden to enforce his persecution against his political enemies on sacred Pennsylvania soil, not on my watch. Wow. Like, that is a powerful <laughs> message, right? The, I don't know how you uh, take a step back from that. Like, I think we're only upping the ante constantly in our, in our politics. Uh, I don't know how you cool things down after issuing uh, a statement like that. Clearly, he's trying to frame a narrative and and we're seeing this all across the states of this whole you know weaponizing the FBI and right you know Joe Biden's DOJ it's it's his like these people are are you know his trolls practically and uh, there there's very clearly uh, an effort here to undermine the credibility of our police institutions i say our but really this is you know in the united states although i'll argue you can see some of this happening in canada too Mm-hmm. Um, challenging the the police, challenging the FBI, um, and making people lose trust in our in our institutions. I know that that, that trust, uh, and maybe there's reasons for that. That's a bigger picture conversation we can have another time. But the fact that politicians are using this language, this really aggressive tone, um, is a bit. It's a frankly, it's alarming. 
Right. So I, I want to talk to you about that. I know you said another time, but I, I, I know you've been writing about uh, the degrading of trust with institutions. Yes. Uh, and uh, since we're talking about law, law enforcement, I think I can make a case that the group of people that are degrading trust in domestic Canadian law enforcement right now are the governing liberals, <laughs> you know, who talk to the RCMP, trying to persuade them to make the terrible shooting tragedy in Nova Scotia yeah. linked to gun control. So that's not a far right thing that's going on. That's a, you know, that's a state thing that's going on that in turn degrades trust with the RCMP in, the, in our country, does it not? I agree. I worry that what ends up happening is these institutions, like ultimately they're bureaucrats, they find themselves in the middle of what becomes a political bun fight. And they are woefully unprepared and inadequate um, to defend themselves in this position. Uh, they, it kind of becomes a question of like, well, who do they, who do they report to? Who's really in charge here? How do they take a stand against the government um, in order to, emphasize that they are independent right and and therefore like shore up that trust with with the public or do they not do that because they're afraid of like backlash on the other side it's when and this is a you know a, a group of people that are already under under pressure um to de, you know defund the police like they're under pressure from multiple sides and i think they i part of me feels badly for them that they are in this position and they're kind of being used as political fodder, frankly. But to your point, they've also allowed themselves uh, right. by not taking a stand. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I, I think another point that, that you've made or are making is whatever, you know, if, if, if you think things are politicized now in Canada, you know, wait a couple of years because usually we're just a couple of years behind whatever, trend is happening in U.S. politics uh, coming up uh, to be part of Canadian politics. Yeah. And this trust thing just keeps getting worse until someone's willing to, to take like a significant, almost a dramatic action to correct it. So, um, and that could come in the form of, of a really effective apology, for example. I mean, who that comes from, I'm not sure. But we look at the distrust in the media right now, which is really problematic. We need Canadians should be able to, and they need to frankly be able to trust their media to be independent and to be a reliable source of information. And we've seen poll after poll that indicates that they do not. They also don't trust the government, which is also a big problem, of course. Right. Um, but, but it's usually about like 50% of people no longer trust the government and they don't trust the media. So you have to wonder, well, who, who do they trust? And the only way to build that trust back up is for these institutions, both the government and the media, for you know our bureaucracy, for for all of the the arm's length bodies that we depend on um, to function as a society. They have to start taking more ownership when they do things wrong. So when there's a mistake, it's imperative that we recognize that this mistake, even if it was with good intentions, whatever, you've got to own it, and you have to own it publicly. And it's hard for people to do that, but you shouldn't be in a position of power over one of our, um, you know, one of our, either you shouldn't be in a position of like running a media organization 
or of running the police or of running our government if you aren't willing to apologize when you've screwed up. Yeah, and uh, I, th- I again, great point. Uh, we had this kerfuffle in Ottawa, and I know it was it's inside baseball, but with David Aiken, mm. who uh, who was quite aggressive with Pierre Polyev uh, at his opening newser because uh, uh, Polyev didn't want to take questions after the after his remarks, and uh, Aiken sort of acted out and started yelling a lot. Uh, during uh, Pierre's mm-hmm. exposition, uh, and but then he apologized for it. But the if you look at the media commentary on it, uh, it was pretty defensive of uh, of David Aiken, one of their own, uh, in the parliamentary press gallery, and uh, not many people taking up Pierre Polyev's point of view. Maybe that's what you would expect. But the, all that does is reinforce the idea that the media, the media party, as that remember that term from four or five years ago, uh, is protecting one of its own. So I'm I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong, although I have my point of view on that. Uh, the 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 fact of the matter is, the media is not very good at taking ownership of its mistakes. Is I guess what I'm trying to say. Totally, I, they, they're woefully unprepared to take ownership. Um, we, we've seen this in, in what's happened um, <laughs> with various media personalities who've been removed from positions over time um, and the broadcaster's response or, or how, they, how they put that information out perhaps was, you know, left people wanting, wanting more of an explanation for why they took those actions. Um, and, but when, we, when, when journalists get it wrong, and I, you know, there's a great example um, that actually I fell into the trap on too. So I want to take some ownership for that. Um, there was a Twitter story during the convoy about that apartment building that someone was taping the doors shut, and there was right. a, a threat they were going to burn it down or something like that, which was certainly criminal activity and scary, very scary stuff. But it turns out that the person who did this had absolutely nothing to do with the convoy. And, and yet that story was like widely spread on social media. And there was no way once like weeks later, we, people figured out that actually this person had nothing to do with it um, to fix that to, and I don't know that, that many of the people who, who shared it on social media, who have large followings or um, who are themselves members of, of media, if they, we're following up then and saying, hey, fact checking ourselves here, this turned out to be, um, well, it's not that it was false. It happened. It just, it turned out to be false that it was anyone associated with the convoy. Uh, instead, you end up in this, this circular argument um, that I myself, to be honest, have, have also made that, well, you know, the conditions that were created by the convoy allowed for more illegal activity to to take place or something like this to happen. So therefore it's still wrong. Like, sure. But it, it had the effect of shifting perceptions about the people who were there and what they were there to do. um, When, and and had the effect of people who were sympathetic to the cause saying, here's the media again, 
creating this false narrative exactly uh, and persecuting us uh, and that that in turn led to state persecution through the emergencies act which you know to bring us back to this this notion of like the government needing to review their own actions and potentially apologize when they get things wrong um, reviewing covid is is certainly one of the areas where i yes. think a lot of mistakes were made with the again, I'll say probably with the best intentions most uh, most of the time. Um, I, I do want to give people the benefit of the doubt when you're responding to a crisis of that scale. With when we look back now, like we didn't know, <laughs> there's so much we didn't know as as decisions were being made. Of course, now you would make different decisions, but now you also have way more information that you didn't have two years ago. Um, but we still need to go back and kind of audit that, review that process, and figure out were the best decisions made with the information that we had available at the time, or were you still dragging your feet or were you still like, or did you, where were the mistakes and own them? I think it's really important to own them. I would actually encourage Justin Trudeau to when this process is like, once they've done the review, if, if I were in the liberal war room, I would say you need to go on a national apology tour. Like he did like at the very beginning, you remember years ago, he went on that apology tour? Yeah. And it yeah. was highly effective, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, this, this review can't be a witch hunt, nor can it be a whitewash. It's got to be somewhere, obviously, in between those two. But I don't know if, if, if we're in a place politically or socially where I don't know if we can even do that anymore. Like at this point, it kind of feels like they can only make things louder and angrier and um, punchier on, on, on either side. Like the, the liberals often blame um, conservatives. They blame the, the right wing for all sorts of negative things without taking ownership of the, the things that they're doing to amp up toxicity, to make, to make people feel othered, you know, to make us feel like right. we, the language that they use to describe people, you know, in the States, whether it's deplorables or similar languages have been used here, like that, there's a, a real reluctance to take ownership. And I, I just, it's depressing. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> uh, we're out of time, Melanie. We're obviously going to have to have you back if you're so, uh, so, uh, if it's possible. And, of course. Uh, because there's so much to talk about, but I do want to thank you for coming on the program. I also want to thank our sponsors, MunicipalSolutions.ca and Looney Politics uh, for their continued sponsorship, and we'll be back in seven days. Thanks for listening.